Hey everyone, E here. Uh, just wanted to let you know, uh, Drawing a Dialogue is an educational podcast, and today we will be talking about human sexuality and using some mature language, um, just as a heads up. So I hope you enjoyed the episode, and thanks so much for listening. Jackson. I'm Kathy G. Johnson. And this is Drawing a Dialogue, which is a podcast about comics and comics adjacent media and their historical and educational contexts, usually. Um, so I am a cartoonist scholar. I am a art educator, cartoonist, and scholar. So usually what we do is I kind of talk about uh, the context of something, whether that's historical context or just um, contemporary analysis, which is kind of what I'm going to be doing today. And then Kathy uh, offers educational perspective and context as well. So today we're going to be talking about My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness. It is a graphic novel that was translated and published in North America. It's from Japan. Um, it was published, it got put out in June, right? June 2017? Yeah, it was originally um, self-published on Pixiv, which is a sort of online Japanese community for artists, uh, kind of similar to how DeviantArt is. It got picked up off Pixiv by uh, East Press, which is how it got its Japanese release. And then the English release was by Seven Seas Entertainment, uh, and that was fairly recent. Um, so when we started uh, talking about this, I really thought hard, I guess, about how I wanted to approach it. Um, I wanted to uh, use it, I guess, as an opportunity to do something that I've talked about in the last couple of episodes about um, kind of forging a new tradition or like coming up with new ways of exploring um, how different works fit in a contemporary like context. So this was just the uh, how I felt, for me, the most interesting mm-hmm. way to explore it. Do you want to talk about why you picked up uh, the book in the first place? Yeah, um, so I keep a, a um, reader's blog, and I like to collect books and graphic novels that I want to share with students, like a reading recommendation list, essentially. Yeah. And I was picking up a lot of um, what is described as like sort of chaste Yuri manga, which would be like a romance between two girls that's like relatively non-sexual. And they had this sort of, they're fictional romance stories that are sort of fun to read. But in the educational context, my friend had actually recommended to me that I teach my lesbian experience with loneliness. Um, because it is a quote-unquote real account of a lesbian's life experience, as opposed to just a fictional story. I personally found this book not something that you can just hand to a student, especially a high school student. I would recommend this probably more for university-level education. Yeah. But it brought up a lot of questions about how to talk about human sexuality and 
just a lot of other difficult topics to talk about in a school setting. I don't know if I'm crazy about the word difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand. I- um, it's just basically it's like the reading recommendation list that I like to keep are books that I can just hand a student without having to give them any context. But this book, you need to teach the book to a student. I felt like I couldn't just give it to a student. Yeah. And so when me and E first started talking about doing a podcast together, I kept saying I really want to talk about my lesbian experience with loneliness with E. Yeah, that's actually why I, I, I had been wanting to read it. But uh, when I knew Kathy was so interested in it, I borrowed it and read it myself. There's something very, I guess, like intimate about it. And that's something I'm going to talk about in a little bit, I guess. But I can definitely see like, it's very nuanced, I guess, in the way it like presents things. And it's not like easily digestible, except that it is also like very universally understood, I feel like, uh, just based on like my reactions and the reactions of like everyone I know who's read it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And actually, um, I have an interview with the author that was done on a website about Pixiv. Um, her name is uh, Kabi Nagata, by the way, um, and this interview is with Dana Kondo. This is, I believe, translated, um, so it's a little bit like straightforward in the translation, but she talks about uh, wanting to make the stories relatable. Like she says, um, one of the questions is, is there anything you keep in mind while drawing manga? And she says, to not glorify or lower myself and my stories too much. It'll be hard for the readers to find the stories relatable if glorified, and making myself too pathetic will just spread a lot of negative feelings. <laughs> And she says, like, the, she considers the book easily relatable to anyone and that most of the comments she receives are from younger people in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, so it's it's a story about, she's I believe she's turning 26, and it's about a lesbian woman in Japan, and she has never had sex. And so she hires a sex worker. That's sort of the premise, but the heart of the story is really her dealing with depression and dealing with she has an eating disorder mm-hmm. and just like sort of all the things that go along with not just the sexual aspect of being a lesbian, but the other societal aspects that come along with her feelings as, of being a young woman. Yeah. And I think the thing that because um, it is very like I said, there's been a lot of universal uh, kind of reactions to it and I think that does come from the fact that it, she uses that specific incident that happened in her life as sort of a, a grounding point for these broader issues that are pretty common struggles for people um, who are younger like early adulthood hiring a lesbian escort is not a common experience I think shared experience mm. but struggling with depression is uh, eating disorders are like issues of Trying to fit into society as a queer person, things like that are very, like, very heart-wrenching to read because it was very, like, real. Yeah, very, very the parts real. that hit you that you relate to aren't what you expect to relate to so strongly. She captures these small moments really well in a way that I think comics does so strongly is that there's, like, these distinct images and, like, she's just very precise in the emotions and what mm-hmm. she's conveying, which can make it really relatable. Yeah, and there was um there was a round table on the Comics Journal um a few years ago when uh Hilary Shute's book, uh Graphic Women, Life Narrative and Contemporary Comics came out and it was um Raina Telemager and uh Ellen Forney and a couple other women. Um and they were just talking about how uh autobio 
like how women in comics use autobio and Ellen Forney said something um, that I thought was interesting, which is, um, so I think that comics have the potential for creators who are interested in expressing their stories in that kind of intimate, handwritten, immediate, approachable, a handwritten letter kind of way. Comics lend themselves to that kind of storytelling incredibly well. And especially something like My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness, which was originally put out on Pixiv, which is like a community where you just upload art for free. It's not a paid service and it's not closed, mm. if that makes sense. Um, yeah, totally. No, it's highly accessible and free. Yeah. So it was very like, that is like a very like diary kind of just like webcomic approach, which kind of brings me to like what I was going to talk about, which is sort of ha- sort of like the roots of autobiography and also um, how autobiography is used in performance art because there's sort of a long-standing history and tradition of frequently women but marginalized artists in general using their own um, bodies in artwork as a grounding point to talk about broader things so I do want to be clear that this is not meant to be like some kind of definitive or exhaustive comparison I'm not like saying that this is what anyone like (laughs) I'm not saying that uh the relationship is like from the actual author or anything like that um yeah um this is just it's something that like stuck out to me when we were talking about my lesbian experience loneliness and the other autobiographical zines we were looking at and uh like a sort of interdisciplinary lens that struck me as interesting given that performance art at least autobiographical performance kind of comes out of the same time and place uh, in America as mm-hmm. other biographical comics and they sort of share like similar anti-establishment roots and things like that and I don't see many people talking about it <laughs> essentially cool. so we're going to be talking about this in like a North American context the like our experience with the book comes from the 70s release yeah and I think what we're doing is like um so this is yeah it, this is within the North American context and we're experiencing it through the Seven Seas edition that was presented in North American context. And then... uh, Um, I guess what I'm saying is that I I wanted to use this book um, and my reaction to this book as a jumping off point um, to sort of discuss autobiographical performance as it is in comics and as it is in art, like the tradition of art. Yeah, because she uses her drawings of her body in this book and so what you're talking about are performers who yeah, use yeah. their bodies and their performances. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying about uh, like the idea of there being an intimacy in these comics. Mm. Because it is like a very intimate act, I think, to share these moments and also to draw your own body. Especially in like, you know, she draws herself like in sexual uh, experiences and it's not done in like an erotic way or anything like that, but that still is like a vulnerable moment. She's making like an active choice to share with her audience, um, which kind of heightens that effect of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that I kind of feel that like comics relate stronger to mediums that involve time and space than to flat paintings or flat works of art comics Mm. have a time and spatial element theory grostein says comics as an art of space and an art of time these dimensions are indissociable and in harriet earl's comics in the chronotype time space relationships in traumatic sequential art um which is an article about how comics 
like work with tra- trauma, which is interesting. She talks about um, in a film, all information is presented in the same space. We watch the entire sequence of events unfolding on one screen. The physical spatial relationship is lacking, thus more so than with a traditional literary text in filmic media. The physicality of the comic is a major factor in its reading. So, like performance, comics have this like physical spatial mm. element and like a time element like a fourth dimensional element to them as well totally yeah so just to give you guys i guess a little background about autobio and kind of how autobiographical art became a fairly established thing it's pretty actually recent the roots of autobiographical comics began in the underground comics movement in the u.s in the early 1970s um this development opened up the field of life writing to a new group of people thereby changing the constraints of traditional writing assumptions about who gets a life and who doesn't whose stories get told why by whom and how that's from autobiographical comics by elizabeth l Raffay, and it's echoed in writing about autobiographical performance um this is from deirdre head-on's the politics of the personal autobiography and performance. It is easy to forget in the midst of overwhelming deployment of the seeming personal experience in contemporary mass media that prior to the feminist movement of the 1970s, the personal remained firmly private. Uh, in a pre-confessional era, simply placing the personal literally center stage was in itself a radically political act, not to mention a courageous departure. So essentially, all of this is sort of tied up both in comics and in performance art in sort of the second wave of feminism. That was really the context that you start to see this idea of the personal is political. So that was when women primarily started drawing on their Mm. life experiences as a uh, source and also challenged the idea that only certain people's stories were worthy of being told, i.e. like white men. (laughs) So underground comics, you saw that mm-hmm. with women's comics, with like Trina Robert Robbins and them. Uh, their comics drew a lot on their personal stories, as so did. And when you say women's comics, that's the title of the um yeah women's of the comics. magazine yeah <laughs> yeah women's comics uh w i m m i z n z yeah yeah um, yeah they went through a few a few yeah. iterations of, of spellings, but yeah, that's the one that ends with yeah it. yeah. So I think, anyway, I just think that's an important um, context to understand. And I thought that was interesting also, just that those things sort of arose at the same time, more or less, even if they were coming from sort of different perspectives, because performance art sort of originally came from within the institution, um, and it's still very much like within the institution of the art world. But it was about sort of critiquing the institution. A lot of early performance art was about trying to destroy the hierarchy of genres, and like challenging the commercialization of the art world. You see that again. And that's in the 60s? Yeah, 60s and 70s. Whereas 60s comics were very much a reaction against like critics not accepting them. So you have like these kind of two sides, I think, of a similar coin. Mm-hmm. So I had a couple of pieces I wanted to talk about in junction with my lesbian experience with loneliness and also just comics um, in general to kind of like highlight, I guess, this relationship I'm talking about. So to start, I wanted to talk about Megumi Igarashi, uh, who goes by Roku Denashiko, which roughly means good for nothing girl. She actually, she is famous for her, um, what she calls her manko art, and manko is sort of like a slur word for, uh, I think it's like the Japanese equivalent of pussy, where she makes molds of her own vagina and then uses those to make art objects, um, like charms and phone cases. Most famously, she's known for making a, a working kayak from that mold. So that's like a very literal example. 
of someone who uses her own body in order to make like a bigger statement. This is contemporary, right? She's working in the present. Yeah, she's working contemporarily. And actually, she has a manga memoir called What is Obscenity? The Story of a Good-for-Nothing Artist and Her Pussy. And on Amazon, it's listed as like frequently bought with my lesbian experience with loneliness. Cool. Yeah. I think she's also an interesting case because um, she's actually not like a part of an established art institution. And she's talked about that in interviews. Um, she said, frankly, I think that the arts establishment is upset that this uneducated, no credentialed woman has actually come out of nowhere and gotten so much artistic credibility from the international community just from getting arrested. In Japan, you're only an artist if you've gotten the correct credentials from the prestigious universities. It's a very highfalutin description, and I don't have that. Why was she arrested? For obscenities. Um, she's been arrested ah. for obscenities in multiple cases, yeah. So I think that is definitely an example of a piece that could coexist. Not to say, um, I want to be careful here that, that I don't come across as if I'm saying that my lesbian experience of loneliness is inherently political, because I don't think that's Kabinagata's endgame uh, in like talking about herself. And I think when you say the personal is political, that kind of like runs the risk of sounding as if you're insinuating that like people just existing in their daily lives as some sort of inherent political act, which is something I think that's sort of up to individuals to claim. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to get at is that th- this is like not created in a vacuum, right? Like the, the, this like idea of depicting yourself in these vulnerable situations as like a marginalized person does like kind of contribute to an ongoing dialogue about that marginalization. Even if it's just in the sense of like, these are these experiences and they're perfectly normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I th- that's part of what uh, Rokuden Nashiko is doing is she wants to like highlight the fact that this is something that's considered obscene, but nothing she does is inherently erotic. She makes like cute charms, right? So like what she's trying to, which she's sort of like intentionally using her body to highlight that this shouldn't be politicized, which is like mm-hmm. interesting and important. I also wanted to talk about another contemporary artist whose name is um, Nick K, and Nick is capital N-I-C. They are a transdisciplinary performance artist that uses their body to explore intergenerational trauma. They have a couple of pieces that are really interesting. I wanted to specifically talk about uh, Little Black. Little Black is an experimental solo performance influenced by New York City, gay queer ballroom culture, the live punk shows, butch and praise dance. Uh, Little Black is a story about a fairy boy, child of God, little black girl, performer, and activist. The story plays out through a series of biographical moments that are equal parts narrative and dream. So that's taken directly from their website, like their own artist statement. But they are another contemporary artist that is using their own body and like their own life story to talk about, um, in their case, they're talking about racism and like transphobia and mm-hmm. gentrification and that. And um, Within New York City? Yeah, they're from the Bronx um, and they do most of their work in... New York City. Okay, cool. And so again, like autobiographic comics, do you want to like, I guess I should have asked this at the beginning, do you want to talk about the, the, introduce the the other comics that we wanted to talk about or? Yeah, I'm all, I mean, I'm all prepared. Because I did want to talk about these sort of injunction with those. Okay, yeah. So what I brought to uh, drawing a dialogue today are, I brought three zines that I got at Cake this year. Um, that's the Chicago Alternative Comics Expo. These are just from um, June 2017. The zines are uh, Phantom by 
Atmaja Pundia, which is, uh, she had a new edition out by 1% Press, so this is 2017. Um, so, like, my quick summary of it is it's about gentrification of Queens, which is, um, to quote the book, uh, the most diverse city in the world of immigrants and families. It's about the author's memories growing up there and her frustration seeing white recent grads moving into the neighborhood and eroding its history. Another zine that I brought is Say Her Name by Bianca Yunus. It's a comic accounting the author's experience getting harassed by the police, and I believe she's in Chicago. And then the third zine that I brought is Titty Chop Boob Flash by Hugo Rose, and it's about their experience navigating transphobia in healthcare, insurance, and getting top surgery. So I wanted to present these in the context of my lesbian experience with loneliness and in the context of our, what we're creating here with Drawing a Dialogue. Um, to show other examples of comic memoirs about personal experiences in a, like, a larger political climate. But as we had talked about at the beginning, so these memoir comics, this context that we're creating here and this angle is not the only one in which to view these works or anything like that, or even if this is the way to view these works. Uh, what we're saying here is that these works can present an opportunity and that this is just one context to see them right and those all also do what i mentioned before with uh, my lesbian experience loneliness and these performance pieces of like touching on sort of a specific moment in um the creator's life as a touchstone for like a bigger conversation which is obviously like uh in terms of just uh formal qualities like a very helpful grounding tool for writing i would think but also offers an opportunity to connect them to uh, works where the literal body is being used. Mm. <laughs> like this Nick Cave piece, uh, Little Black. And there's also a piece I want to talk about in conjunction with uh, Titty Chop Boob Slash. It's by Joseph Liatella, who is a um, performance artist who is a trans man and a former sex worker. Um, and he, his work is primarily about navigating, um, like, uh, medical trans like being like post-surgical and things like that and there was one specific piece of his called shedding where he donned an, an organza garment with a picture of his body pre-surgery so before he had top surgery on it and then slowly strips it off and performs a funerary process for it so that's like a very literal take on sort of showing the process of going through top surgery and uh, how that like changes you um that connects to titty chop boob slash which is also like a personalized look at that process mm -hmm. and i also really liked uh his artist statements there was a line that relates to this which is um the individual experience is honored as central to social and political resistance so again kind of drawing on that idea of the personal is political um so there's there's just a lot of examples of uh, these kinds of performance pieces that you can draw kind of your own connections between. I did also want to mention Coco Fusco's uh, Two Undiscovered Amer Indians that she created with Guillermo Gomez Peña. Um, this was a this is an older piece. This piece was created in 1992-1993, so this is a little bit older than the other ones I've talked about. Gufusco is Cuban-American and Gomez-Pena is Chicano, and they put themselves in public display in a cage as a satirical reference to the historical practice of exhibiting human beings as entertainment, and they would set this up outside of museums and claim to be natives off an undiscovered island of the Gulf of Mexico 
and performed tasks and rituals that were explained by pseudoscientific informational materials posted as part of the performance piece. Audience members were invited to interact with them and could pay to take a photo or see them dance. So this is a piece that they're using their own bodies to draw on a intergenerational experience of colonialization and racism. And again, like all of these pieces are uh, uh, politicized more or less in like an intentional way. And I'm not trying to say that the comics are the same, but I think they belong, not belong. I think you can look at them through a lens of, um, how they talk, how they could possibly be in conversation with each other with how um, the creators use themselves as a subject to talk about societal traumas and things that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also kind of want to talk about here just objectivity versus subjectivity. Yeah, I was going to do those definitions too, but Sure, go yeah, go right ahead. ahead. I I don't I'm I think I'm out. Okay. All right. So now it's time for my segment, um, Education Evolution. Today I'm going to talk about what teaching memoir comics in the educational setting can look like. Um, I'm sort of looking at theories around social justice education and art education. As I said before, this context and angle is just one way to look at these artworks. It's by no means the only way, and it's by no means the way that the authors intended their works to be looked at. What I'm talking about is that this is an opportunity in which to view these theories that I'm going to talk about. And it feels really important to say stuff like that because what we don't want to be doing is prescribing anything to someone else's art piece. Yeah. Yeah. And like what is presented through their art piece is the piece themselves. And we can infer things, but that's not... That's not what we're here for, and especially in an educational setting, what you're always wanting to be doing is just presenting things and allowing your students and your or your audience to draw their own conclusions and see what they want to see. And that's yeah, like I like I said, I wanted to talk about performance because I see a relation. I personally, as a scholar, see a relationship there that I think can, as a broad understanding of how autobiographical subjects are used and enrich a reading of those books. I'm by no means suggesting that that's what the authors were looking at or were trying to do or... Or if that's the only way to do it. Oh yeah, or that's the only way to do it, right? Because there is also like a rich tradition of autobiography everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so again, I'm going to be talking about Say Her Name, Titty Chop, Boob Slash, and Phantom. There's just a few definitions that I think are really important touchstone before we start talking about these pieces and these theories, and that's the difference between subjectivity and objectivity. So to be subjective, it is based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. And objective is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions while considering and presenting facts. These definitions are just from Google. So um, an objective perspective is one that is not influenced by emotions, opinions, or personal feelings. It is a perspective based on fact and things quantifiable and measurable. A subjective perspective is one open to greater interpretation based on personal feeling, emotion, aesthetics, etc. Was there something you wanted to say about those definitions or do you want to add anything, E? 
Oh, yeah, I wanted to bring up the fact that we have a tendency to give more weight to objective mm-hmm. uh, objectivity and how we value people's personal experiences. We tend to, um, and when I say we, I just mean this is me navigating through the world and what I've noticed and also like trends in academia, especially. Subjective things tend to have to be qualified a little bit more, and that makes sense to a degree, but when it comes to people's life experiences, I've noticed there tends to be sort of a downplaying <laughs> of like, for instance, when. Uh, women talk about feminism Mm -hmm. because they actually experience sexism kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I just felt like that was worth noting in the context of these being subjective like first person accounts of their feelings totally yeah and then the third definition that I wanted to talk about is didactic didactic is going with the intention of teaching particularly in having moral instruction as an ulterior motive That means when you're entering something, to be didactic is to want to teach. Um, You're writing a story that you want to have a sort of a moral conclusion. So what I'm saying is, I wanted to bring these definitions into the conversation because what I'm saying is that these works are not didactic, but they are a lived subjective experience. Um, Someone of a marginalized experience is presenting to an audience. They aren't about teaching the audience. It's so like here what we wanted to do is sort of honor and explore the weight of that experience. Uh, These stories take place in a specific um, moment in time and it grounds those experiences. And then um, there's a significant amount of truth to these events that are being presented and that can allow readers to relate to some moments, although not exactly because it is extremely personal. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring in, once again, the Bishop theory of um, mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors in which all literature can either be observed as if through a window, personally relatable as though through a mirror, or entered through the experience through a sliding glass door. Um, We talked about this in episode one. And this theory isn't perfectly adaptable. To what I'm necess- what I'm saying is because that these are personal experiences. So at one point you may just be looking through a window and you're just observing someone's personal experience, but then there might be moments in which the window turns into a mirror and you can recognize yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that goes back to what I was trying to say much less elegantly about <laughs> my lesbian experience with loneliness in the beginning, where um, the the escort experience is not is a is looking through a window, perhaps, but um, how she feels about herself is a big old mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think what I'm saying is that this theory is just of one theory, and it's actually for children's literature in trying to uh, encourage marginalized voices mm-hmm. to be more published so that children of marginalized experience can see more mirrors. Yeah. But also what I'm saying is that this theory isn't exactly adaptable because these are all personal experiences, which is interesting. Yeah. Right? They aren't like historical accounts. They aren't. They're all very specifically personal experiences. So arguably could all just be a window too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think marginalized authors or or creators are sometimes put in a position of pressure to make work that has to be a mirror for everyone, which doesn't work out right because we're you know they're drawing from their own personal experiences those aren't universal I mean there's universal there's like universal elements to them but not in every case 
like how we experience things yeah and like also what i was just saying and that it's not necessarily that these aren't being created in order to educate right you know yeah and i think sometimes we ask people to do that more than we should yeah totally so i have four articles that i wanted to talk about in the education segment here the first one is called uh toward an alternative classless society through comics And this is by two Indian authors in reference to Indian comics from 2016. So it's by Dankar and Bhatti. So to summarize the article, um, the authors discuss ways in which lower classes of India have been left out of comics. The authors suggest that more lower class people could create comics, the more understood this group of people would be in the minds of children who would then grow up without prejudice. So a quote from the article is, Being a very casual visual form, comics have the advantage of conveying the voice in a manner that does not fall too harsh on children, while creating a picture of a classless society in their minds. So part of why I wanted to talk about this article is that it's a a pretty good example of why we kind of try to stick to the North American context on drawing a dialogue. Because if I personally were to read an article from the North American context, that calls on marginalized people to create comics to educate the majority of people about their experiences, I would not listen to that article. I would throw that article away. Right. Because that puts the onus on the oppressed in order to educate the oppressor about their own experiences when it really should be the people in the majority trying to reach out, right? It shouldn't, the onus should not be on the oppressed to educate. So like I really, so in this, this is from, um, but for this article, because of my inexperience and lack of understanding for Indian society, I, I mean, I just don't know if this article is baloney or if it should be, you know, yeah. like, or if I can recommend it or anything like that. Um, but it's interesting. And so I'm going to cite it in the show notes. The next article to continue the trend of leaving North America. Um, so this is it's titled The Role of Arts and Education for Peace Building, Diversity and Intercultural Understanding a comparative study of educational policies in Australia and Spain. And this is by Kabita Mast, Netsinga, and Forrest. Um, This is also recent. I want to say it's 2017 or 2016. Yeah, this is from March 2017. This article compares the art educational policies between Spain and Australia to, quote, in relation to their concerns for arts education to contribute to values education and the acquisition of peaceful social and civic competencies in schools. The use of the arts to shape individual and community identities, enhance relationships between people, and to promote positive conflict and transformation, development, and in general, contribute to peace building. So this article falls into similar issues that the previous article did, and that it's outside of the North American context. However, there are a few findings within the study that I found interesting for our purposes here. The school, this is a quote, the school has a strong impact on identifying, producing, and legitimizing people's and cultural beliefs and attitudes. At the same time, educational efforts to know and understand other cultures and their values do not necessarily enhance a peaceful relationship between them, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, what they're saying is that even though what they talk about a lot in this article would be like music education. So that's 
like being presented music, international music, like uh, music from other countries than the one that you're in. What they're saying is just because you understand this music does not necessarily mean you are going to go on to be a peaceful person. Like there's a lot of issues right. that go with that. I mean, a lot of issues of colonialization, of gentrification, all like there's so much wrapped up in consuming and understanding like another culture that other than your own just because you're being presented this work in school as a child does not mean that you're going to go on to be non-prejudiced etc etc yeah my next article is titled image-based participatory pedagogies reimagining social justice by powell and serrier so what i'm getting at in this section right now is the education of social justice Okay, and like sort of the drawbacks and the issues that go along with this. So to quote the article, um, art and visual culture are able to produce both new knowledge and new modes of thinking. So unlike the previous two articles, this piece is not talking about art education as being didactic, right? So educating the readers and viewers through an experience of art. This piece grants agency to the viewers. So I'm going to clarify this with another quote from the article. The arts break open a dimension that is inaccessible to other experience, a dimension in which nothing functions within the given established norms of reality. Since works of art are not necessarily centered on the representation of what is right, just, or good, encounters with works of art can lead to the imagination of a new social vision, a wide awakeness to other possibilities. Visual experiences serve to empower individuals to interpret their own situations and move towards new social visions of ideals such as justice, freedom, and equality. The self is not fixed nor ready-made, but something in continuous formation through choice of action. Thus, consciousness alone cannot affect social change. One must act to transform. In terms of social justice, wide awakeness implies moving beyond mere knowledge and about an unjust scenario and toward acting in some way that may potentially incite change or attention. So then, why comics in this instance? This is me talking again. Why choose comics to expose an audience to unjust scenarios and experiences to encourage wide awakeness? To go, to go back to quoting the article. Visual culture opens up a world of intertextuality in which images, sounds, spatial delineation are read onto and through one another, occurring layers of meaning and subjective responses. There is more to images and words than what is simply shown and spoken. What is expressed is an experience which encourages continually finding new information in the text. This is why I find memoir comics to be so important a contribution to the possibilities of social justice and art education. Yeah. And everything, basically. I wanted to end my section on a paper encouraging marginalized youth to tell their own stories. So it's titled Digital Storytelling as Arts-Inspired Inquiry for Engaging, Understanding, and Supporting Indigenous Youth. It's by Anglinton. Gubrim and Wexler. And I want to say this is from 2017 and 2016 too. All these articles are like really, really recent. So this paper considers digital storytelling as a powerful arts-inspired approach that can help 
researchers, practitioners, and communities understand and support Indigenous and marginalized youth. So when I talk about digital storytelling, it's something that is happening a lot in schools right now, and it uses images just like anything on the internet. It uses images and text sort of interwoven, and so like I find articles about digital storytelling to be essentially talking about what comics also do. Um, so that's part of why I'm bringing in this article. So the article is about a digital storytelling initiative with Alaskan Native youth ages 10 to 18. So digital storytelling are multimedia narratives using text and voiceover and images and videos. So I'm just going to go into this paper's conclusion. This transformative pedagogical stance is critical, supporting youth in understanding the ways in which structures bear down and impact their self-making, and exploring cultural production and its links to the production of self and betterment of communities. Now, sidebar. This is basically what we talked about last week when talking about lower class, upper class divisions, right? Yeah. So cultural production is usually allotted to the upper classes due to the expectations of what art with a capital A is, right? But cultural Mm -hmm. production is available to everyone. The article goes on to say that this cultural production complements the idea of radical democracy recognizing that youth are active, innovative people continuously changing themselves and their communities. Um, so, like, what I, yeah, what I want to talk about is social justice and art education. And I think what's really, what gets extremely complicated is that you don't want to be talking about didactic scenarios. But it is extremely important to give the opportunity for everyone, especially marginalized voices, to tell their story. Right. Because what happens is that people get their voices taken away and they aren't able to to contribute to a, a culture in which that they are in which shapes them and who they are. Yeah, there's actually a quote from the um Deirdre head on paper I cited earlier, um, that relates to that which is um the telling of certain stories remains necessary for different people at different times and in different places. Where some people may purport to have heard it, seen it, done it, others might be desperate to hear it and see it, and some women may need to perform it. What is considered political in one place may seem irrelevant in another, putting a slightly different spin on Harrison's statement that not all of the personal is political in exactly the same way and to the same effect. Beautiful. So now um, it's our letters to the editor segment. So what I brought today is sort of an additional resource for sort of thought structuring on this episode. It's a book titled On Mutant Pedagogies by Jones and Waglum. Um, It's about the use of cartooning as a means of arts-based research for teacher education. So that's the education of teachers. The book challenges the rigidity of textual composition and hypothesizes the quote that we might imagine inquiry and education as collaborative aesthetic activities meant to grow and change along with the act of teaching rather than a program in which we must normalize and perfect right so there's a huge theory in that teaching is just a font of knowledge that knows this knowledge perfectly and imparts it on a student rather than creating knowledge together with the student rather than a back and forth and a conversation and so on mutant pedagogies talks about how cartooning has like this imp back and forth through the creation of image 
and text rather than like the rigidity of simply text. Yeah, I like that. I guess I can say that something I read that I didn't really bring up because it wasn't 100% relevant but that I still think is informative is a book by, or I skimmed rather, a book by Mark Johnson called The Meaning of the Body, Aesthetics of Human Understanding. It's a philosophy book that puts forward the idea of human meaning being embodied, um, so like connected to our bodily experiences, um, as opposed to like uh, the traditional quote-unquote western philosophical thought of like the mind being a disembodied higher presence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Rather than the brain literally being a part of your body. Yeah, it talks a lot about like neuroscience and how like emotional reactions are connected to uh, bodily reactions and like hormones and things like that, which is really interesting. And I think it, it it informs how I feel about this kind of art making and how we pull meaning from things like that, um, especially this part right here, which I have highlighted, which is um, from the beginning of Western philosophy, art was never taken seriously as an essential mode of human engagement with an understanding of the world. The platonic notion that art was mimesis, a form of imitation of the real, co-signed it to a derivative independent status as a source of images and second-rate understanding, not a direct presentation of reality. I like that this book challenges that, and I feel that especially with autobiographical comics, like it's symbolic in a literal sense, I suppose, because it's like a drawing <laughs> mm-hmm. of the creator. But, but it, I, it's not. I don't think think of it as an imitation because it's you know that this is a person relating an experience of theirs that we can all draw meaning from. I was gonna say it's almost more true because um, what is in the past is in the yeah. past. Yeah, no, I like that. It is the human interpretation of the past, right? Yeah. So that's drawing a dialogue. If you're done, e. Yeah, I'm done. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Cool. All right. Okay. So that's drawing a dialogue. Um, I want to thank Downtown Boys for the use of their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can Google them. They're great. Thank you very much, Victoria. So you can find more about drawing a dialogue and other educational work that I do at comicarted.com. You want to say our email? Yeah, sure. Um, If you want to kind of contribute to our ongoing dialogue or just want to talk you can have a question, you can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail. You can also follow us on Twitter at drawadialogue, and you can just tweet us there. That's fine, too. Um, and then you can follow me at Kathy G. John. And you can follow me at E-H-E-T-J-A, E-H-E-T-J-A. What are you reading, E? So Friends of the Table just launched uh, their Patreon-exclusive campaign, um, which is called Bluff City. And episode one came out a few days ago, and I listened to it, and it is very good. And if you like um, kind of actual play podcasts about like world building and character building and all that good stuff, definitely check out Friends of the Table. <laughs> what are you reading, Kathy? Cool. Um, so I've been reading a lot of Dream Daddy, which is <laughs> a video game. Um it's a visual novel in which you play a dad and you romance other fathers in this cul-de-sac that you I've also in. been reading a lot of Dream Daddy, but uh, I didn't want to take it. It's a lot like playing a comic book because you're just like looking at images, but there's like a lot of reading to it. Yeah. Um, but I'm like such a huge sucker. It's just super romantic. Um, and, I'm, and it also... 
everyone has a cute kid. It's like everything that I'm weak for, which is <laughs> romance and adorable children. So, bye. Say goodbye. Oh, okay. I just did. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so, uh, f- farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye. <laughs>